Last week we began a new series through the book of James, and I mentioned then that Bible scholars generally agree that James, the brother of Jesus, is the author of this letter. He was writing to Christians who were suffering and trying to encourage them during their time of trial. In fact, he says that trials bring endurance, and endurance brings maturity. And the essence of James is that as Christians, we are supposed to grow up. We are supposed to mature in the faith. And so James says in the passage of Scripture we have come to today, that as we face the trials in life, we are going to need God's wisdom. Matthew Henry wrote, we should not pray so much for the removal of an affliction as for wisdom to make right use of it. So today we're going to look at godly wisdom. Take your Bibles, turn with me. James chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse number 5 where we left off last week. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away." Now, as we come to this passage of Scripture, James begins by telling us that we are to request God's wisdom. Now, look with me in verse number 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So he says that we are to ask for wisdom. Now, we all understand the importance of wisdom. We all understand and acknowledge that it is important that we are people of wisdom. Now, I heard about a man who was driving down the highway, and and, uh, he looked in his rearview mirror and saw the blue lights flashing behind him, so he pulled over. The policeman got out, came up to where he was, and he rolled down his window, and the policeman said, uh, I had to pull you over because you were speeding. And the man said, you know, he said, I had my cruise control on, and and he said, I guess the the speed limit changed, and I didn't adjust my cruise control. And his wife sitting over next to him said, Harry, I told you two miles back that you were speeding. (laughs) And then the policeman said, "Uh, by the way, when I was walking up, I noticed that your taillight is broken out. And he said, I needed to tell you about that. And, And the man said... That must have happened when we were at the mall right before we got on the highway. And his wife said, Harry, I told you two weeks ago that taillight was out. And then the policeman said, and I'm also going to have to cite you for not wearing your seatbelt. And he said, well, when you walk up here, he said, I took it off. She said, Harry, you know that you never wear your seatbelt. 
And so he looked at his wife and he says, can you not keep your big mouth shut? And the policeman said, does he always verbally abuse you that way? And she said, oh, no, just when he's had too much to drink. We understand the importance of wisdom. We need to have wisdom, but what is it? Well, it's more than knowledge. Wisdom isn't knowledge, but it is knowledgeable. Billy Graham wrote, knowledge is horizontal, wisdom is vertical and comes from above. It is more than discernment. Discernment isn't wisdom, but wisdom is discerning. It is more than understanding. Wisdom is not understanding, but it does understand. Well, then what is wisdom? Wisdom is what is true and right combined with good judgment. So very, very simply, wisdom then, as we talk about wisdom, is what is true and right that is combined with good judgment. So he says that we are to ask for wisdom, and yet we will never ask for wisdom until, first of all, we understand our need of wisdom. Perfect example of that has to be Solomon. You recall that Solomon became the king of Israel, but Solomon was aware of his inadequacy. He was aware of his need. And so in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse number 7, the Bible says, And now, O Lord my God, Thou hast made Thy servant king in place of my father David, yet I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. So when Solomon then became the king of Israel, he said to God, I, I'm, I am not qualified for this job. I don't know how to do that. I am inadequate for this task. So what did he do? Well, he asked the Lord for wisdom. The Bible says in 1 Kings 3, 9, So give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people to discern between good and evil. So Solomon then said, Lord, I am inadequate to lead these people. I'm like a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. So, Lord, I need your wisdom. Would you not agree with me today that we also need God's wisdom? You see, that's what James is saying to these Hebrew Christians who are suffering trials because of their faith. He said, you need God's wisdom. And we also need God's wisdom in our lives. It is um, God's wisdom oftentimes that keeps us on a path of purity. Because it's not what we want. Interestingly, yesterday in my devotion time, I was reading in Proverbs chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. And the writer of Proverbs says, Understanding and wisdom keeps you from the adulteress. Understanding and wisdom. You see, folks, it is God's wisdom, not our feelings, not our desires, but God's wisdom it keeps us on a path of purity. We need God's wisdom. As parents, you need God's wisdom, do you not? As husbands and wives, you need God's wisdom. And some of you are making decisions in life. They're very important decisions. And certainly you need God's wisdom. So the Bible says that we are to ask God for wisdom. 
Now, there are two basic sources for wisdom. One is that wisdom comes from experience. I learn some things from experience. For instance, if I put my hand on a stove and it burns, then I learn not to put my hand on the stove. And so I have a certain wisdom that came from experience. But James here is not speaking about that kind of wisdom. He is speaking about the wisdom that comes from God. The Bible says in Proverbs 2, 6, the Lord gives wisdom. Paul said in Ephesians 1:17, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom. So the kind of wisdom of which James speak is a wisdom that comes from above. It is the wisdom that comes from God. Warren Wearsby told the story of a, of a wife who went to her pastor and uh, her husband had a stroke. He was blind and he was dying. And so she came to speak to her, her pastor about it. And she said, please pray for me. Pray that I'll have the wisdom not to waste all of this. You see, God gives us wisdom. And so we are, we are told to request wisdom from God. Now, there's a positive aspect of your request. You'll notice there in verse number six, he says, but let him ask in faith, all right? So then he is saying to us that we need the wisdom of God, but we are to ask in faith, believing that God gives wisdom. So the positive aspect of requesting wisdom is that we ask in faith, but then there is also a negative aspect. If you look in verse number 6 again, let him ask in faith without any doubting. Now, the word doubting that is used there does not mean unbelief. It means hesitation. It means to hesitate between belief and unbelief. And we see that in Elijah. You recall when Elijah stood before the people of Israel and spoke to them? And Elijah said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. So Elijah said to the people, same word there, but Elijah said to the people, how long will you hesitate between these two opinions? If you believe that Jehovah is God, then follow him. But on the other hand, if you believe Baal is God, then you ought to follow him. It makes sense to follow him. He said, but you're going back and forth. And that's what the word means there. It means to hesitate between belief and unbelief. And then we see the results. Look at verse number six again. Let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, he is saying that when we doubt or when we hesitate, then we're unstable. We're like the, the waves in the sea. You know, they come up and they go out. Have you noticed that in your own life? That when you're hesitating between right and wrong, between good and evil, between God and self, that when you're hesitating, there is instability in your life? I mean, you can't make a decision because you're over here and then you're over there. You're not sure about this. You're thinking about that. So you just can't make a decision. That's what hesitation does. And that's why he says that when we hesitate between belief and unbelief, he says then you're unstable. You're like the waves of the sea. Not only are we unstable, but he said our prayers are not answered either in verse number 7. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, according to the Scripture, 
when we come to the Lord with that hesitation, hesitating between belief and unbelief, and we pray, he said, let not that man expect that he is going to receive from the Lord. In fact, Jesus said in Mark 11, verse 23, Truly I say unto you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. So James, first of all, knowing these people are going through trials, says you need to ask God for wisdom. And folks, if you're going through trials, if you're going through difficulties, then you need the wisdom of God. Now, we ask for wisdom expecting to receive it. God promises wisdom to those who request wisdom. Now then, I, I mentioned earlier about Solomon. Solomon requested wisdom. He became the king of Israel. He said, I am not qualified to do this. I'm inadequate for the task. Lord, give me wisdom. What did God give to him? That is a question. What did God give to him? I ain't doing too good, am I? He gave him wisdom. Thank you. Anybody? I'm looking for anybody here. First Kings chapter 3, verse number 12. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. Solomon said, God, I need your wisdom. And God says, and so I'll give you wisdom. Folks, that's what James says. He says that we are to ask God for wisdom, and God has promised that He would give us wisdom, and He tells us how God gives. He gives to all. Look at verse number 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Did you notice that? He says that if we ask that He gives to all men, not just a select group of people, not just those who have a particular degree or a particular experience, but to all men. So his promise then is to all men. And then did you notice that God gives generously, he says? Did you see that? God gives generously. Isn't that the Lord? Everything he does is generous. Everything the Lord does is generous. Salvation? Is it just offered to a particular people? Whosoever will may come. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What about God's blessings? Are they just reserved for some people? It rains on the just and the unjust. What about wisdom to all who request? You see, God is generous in His giving. He gives to all, and the Bible says that He gives without reproach. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that when we ask for wisdom, God does not rebuke us or make us feel badly for asking. Have you ever asked for something and someone made you feel badly about it? That you asked for something? I was uh, having supper here the other night on Wednesday night. It was... A, it was they have breakfast, I think, once a month or something like that. And so I was in, uh, I was in line there. They had some pancakes, little bitty pancakes. And so they gave me two. And I said to the guy back there, I said, uh, I want that one too. He said, you only get two. 
And I thought, you know, that's not like God, is it? God gives generously, but not in our kitchen. We don't give generously. Without reproach. So he says that we ask for wisdom, expecting wisdom, because God has promised that he would give wisdom to those who ask. And then he mentions riches and wisdom. Now, they needed wisdom. These people needed wisdom as they faced the trials they were going through. But they also needed God's wisdom concerning riches. Paul uses three unusual words here, in my opinion. The first is humble in verse number 9. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. Humble circumstances. Let the brother of humble circumstances. Now, I know there are those people who say that, that if you are a believer and if you are following after God, that God wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be blessed. And we hear that a lot. But that is the description used by James. James refers to the brother of humble circumstances. And as a matter of fact, these Jewish believers were of humble circumstances because of their faith in Christ. Because of their commitment to Christ. And I believe that this is a description of most believers around the world. In fact, if you look over in James chapter 2, verse number 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Folks, truth is most Christians are not wealthy. And you say, well, I know that my testimony, most Christians are not wealthy. Now, there are some, but most are not. Now, I heard about a Christian who had gone to his boss to ask for a raise, and he said, uh, he said I really need a raise. He said, I'm having a tough time. And he said, and besides that, there are three companies in town after me. And his boss said, well, who are they? And he said, well, the light company, the phone company, and the, and the gas company. Most Christians, most Christians are not wealthy. But he says, humble circumstances. The second word is high. Verse number nine again. Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. Now, how could one of humble circumstances glory in his high position what does the poor Christian have the glory about? Oh, friend, that we are children of God. What do we have to glory about? That we are children of God. That we have been born again, forgiven. And the Bible says that we are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus. I might not have anything on this earth, but I want you to know I'm a joint heir with Jesus. And the Bible tells me that one day when I leave this earth that I'm going to heaven to be with my heavenly Father. So he says that let the man of humble circumstances glory in his high position. And then the third word is humiliation in verse number 10. And let the rich man glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away. Barclay wrote, as the despised poor learn self-respect, so the proud rich learn self-abasement. We don't glory in earthly possessions. Why is that? Well, because riches are temporary. Look at verse number 11. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So to the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Riches are temporary. Barclay wrote, a man who trusts 
who puts his trust in riches is trusting in things with which the chances and changes of life can take from him at any moment. Isaiah wrote, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people is grass. Now, folks, we all know that wealth is temporary, don't we? I mean, if you've watched the stock market these past few weeks, you know that, that, that wealth is temporary. When I was a boy, a teenager, there was a, a guy just a little bit older than I was in our, in our town. His name was Cletus. And Cletus' parents died, and they left him $250,000. Now, for a teenage boy back in that town at that time, I mean, that was... That was all the money in the world as far as we were concerned. $250,000. Well, Cletus, uh, next time I saw Cletus, he's out driving a 1957 red Chevrolet convertible. I'm, oh, man, I wish I was wealthy. You know, he's driving that. He buys a house. He's a little bit older than I was. He bought a house. He's spending money, having the time. We all envy him. But did you know that within less than one year, Cletus was broke? He was just like the rest of us. He had spent it all. We don't put our confidence, our faith in riches because riches are temporary. Riches are also limited. They do not provide what they promise they will provide. John D. Rockefeller wrote, I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. J. Paul Getty wrote, money could not buy health, nor affection, nor good digestion, nor long life. They're limited. It's what they can do. They also are uncertain. The writer of Proverbs said, For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. And I've had people to say to me, If, if money talks, all mine ever says is goodbye. <laughs> it just doesn't stay. And so we don't put our confidence, we don't put our faith in wealth. And riches are potentially dangerous. They are deceitful. Jesus said the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So he says that riches can be deceitful in your life. Dear friend, if you commit your life to riches, they will deceive you. And that's what Christ says. They can also steal your heart away. Psalm 62.10 says, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. That's why Paul warned us about the love of money. There's not anything. Money is spiritual. Okay? It is neither spiritual nor is it unspiritual. It's neither one. It's how you use it. It's whether you have money or money has you. That's what makes it sinful or, or blessed. And there are some people who give their life to the pursuit of money and it steals their heart away from God. And I have seen that and so have you. That people who were committed to the Lord, and as time went by, their, their love became money, and it stole their heart away from God. So the Bible warns us about that. It also warns us that it can keep us from salvation. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he is not saying that it's impossible for a wealthy man to be saved. I know some wonderful, godly, wealthy people, people who know the Lord. And love the Lord and use their resources in the Lord's work. So he is not saying at all that it's impossible for a wealthy man to be saved, but he says it's difficult. Why? Because riches deceive us, because riches steal our heart away, because riches become the pursuit of our life. And so he speaks to them, you're going to need God's wisdom 
concerning riches, concerning money. Now, folks, we've got a lot of people who are financial planners in our church, and I'm looking at some of them. Some of them are sitting up here on the front row and so forth, and we need those people because we can rely on them. But we need God's wisdom concerning money. And that's what James is saying. These people, they are facing trials in life. He said, you need God's wisdom as you go through the trials. Concerning money, finances, he said, you need God's wisdom concerning that. Now, wisdom is a valuable commodity, and yet it is very rare. Wisdom recognizes that our religion, our religious condition, and financial circumstances do not determine our relationship to God. Right? See, here's what the Bible says. A person without Christ, whether rich or poor, is lost. A person with Christ, whether rich or poor, going through good times or hard times, is saved with Christ. So what James, I think, is pointing out to us here is the importance of uh, contentment. We go through trials. We have financial issues. And what he is stressing to us is contentment, because contentment is a sign of maturity. It is when we are content within our circumstances, that is evidence of our maturity. And the Bible says that we learn contentment. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So what James is saying to us is we deal with maturity in his letter. What James is saying is that I want you to be mature. And the sign of maturity is contentment. Because Jesus is the source. It's not the trials we go through. It's not finances. It is Jesus. He is the answer to trials. He is the answer to riches. He is the answer to needs. And he is the answer to eternity. You see, the question is not how much money do you have. The question is, do you know Jesus? And wisdom understands that he is the way of salvation. Paul was writing to Timothy. He said, from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. My friend, the wisest thing you will ever do is to commit your life to Jesus Christ. It's the wisest thing you'll ever do. A commitment of your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's the wisest decision you'll ever make. Now then, once you make that decision, wisdom wants to be obedient to Christ. So, let me just say as we go into the invitation... If you're here and you have never been born into the family of God, the wisest thing you can do today is commit your life to Christ. We want to give an invitation encouraging you to come and pray with one of our counselors. Commit your life to Christ. Perhaps the Lord has been speaking to you about joining the church, some other commitment you need to make. The wisest thing you'll do this morning is to say yes to Him. And so the invitation is for you as well. Our Father and God, as we come to this time of invitation, we pray your blessings upon it. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will reach out and draw people to Jesus, and they will have the wisdom to respond obediently to your gracious call. Bless this time.
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in just a moment, the choir is going to sing. Staff is going to be here at the front. We encourage you to come. I'll ask that you stand with me, please. As we stand together, you come. I'll greet you as you do.